0: Special thanks to our newest sponsor,
1: Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188 and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thial Boost, which is a liquid thial precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. What you're about to hear originally aired in June of 2019. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss.
2: It's there for the taking, and I think it's a real shame uh, when, when people don't use it uh, for, for the best of their business, for stability and, and continuity and uh, making sure that their beer tastes like they expect it to.
1: This week on the show, Mary Jane Maurice arms us with more knowledge about malting and malt COAs so we can all make better beer. You made a really interesting statement during the District Michigan Winter Conference. You mentioned that your lab spends millions of dollars every year to put together malt coas, and if they're going out into a vacuum of potential lack of understanding, nobody's really getting their money's worth. Why don't you comment on that?
2: That's absolutely correct. Uh, one of the the great tragedies, I think, and that's part of the reason why I have been kind of doing this circuit with with the the talks on malt COAs is that I think so many brewers have never really had the chance to sit down and fully look at all of the information that's being presented there. Um, if you've listened to, to my dear friend Joe Hertrick's talks, he talks about the different types of modification, uh, breaking down proteins and, and what that means for breaking down carbohydrates. And being able to take a, a malt analysis and, and look at it, and glean everything that you possibly can for it, then you're really making good use of that malt analysis, which is part of the price that you're paying for malt, is is for us to do all that that work so it's there for the taking, and I think it's a real shame uh, when when people don't use it uh, for for the best of their business, for stability and, and continuity, and uh, making sure that their beer tastes like they expect it to.
1: Yeah, and I get it because you know I can say probably the first six or seven years of my career before I went to brewing school, I, I was in that boat. I mean, it you know malt analysis seemed overwhelming, um, and it didn't really click until I went to school and really understood what was happening during malting. Um, so with that in mind, let's jump into um, sort of the brewer's requirements at a high level. You know, what is a brewer looking for when it comes to malt?
2: Well, it you know, it's an alcohol production business. So how do we take what comes in uh, with the malt and maximize that for For extract recovery, so by breaking down uh, pro, uh, protein cell walls, how do we get access to the starch that is there so that it's readily available uh, in whatever type of mash is being done, whether you know it's a decoction, a programmed infusion, uh, an isothermal, how do we make sure that that starch is as available as as possible so that it can actually uh, become sellable alcohol
1: what are brewers looking for when it comes to uh, milling malt
2: well it didn't take me very long to figure out uh in my career that brewers really hate to adjust mills uh it does not (laughs) seem to be one of those um yes i'd love to do that kind of job uh Options in the, in the brewery. So one of the things that we can do depends is, is on how high- easy
1: the mill is to adjust. Well, and and, and there used to they're used to It's better now, but there used to be a lot of mills that were just really terrible to adjust. Sure, sure.
2: <laughs> but you shouldn't you shouldn't really have to do that all the time. Uh, so having a consistent, uniform size distribution I- is important. Uh, we want to present the mill with basically the same assortment of of particle sizes for as long as we possibly can the one time when you really need to be very careful in particular is is when you go to a crop change because mother nature gives us different size kernels on different years based on you know timing of rainfall and when it got hot and things like that so usually when when you know as a brewer that you're going into uh crop transition with your maltster, that's a good time to talk to them. Take a look at those COAs and say, okay, my my portion on seven uh is increasing or decreasing and maybe I need to do that grist uh, analysis more often to make sure that I really am, am getting everything that I possibly can out without um you know just obliterating the husk and, and causing pro- problems in laundering or any of those types of issues.
1: And I'll say with my brewer's hat on for any other malsters out there listening, um, one gripe I have is some, not all, but some malsters uh, make sort of the crop change, the crop year information on a COA cryptic and, and, you know, difficult to find. So I think that sometimes there are cases where a brewer is getting a drastic shift um, in malt and they there may not be a big red flag that tells them that unless they really understand these COAs.
2: No, that's correct. and in Basically, in timing, where you're really going to start to see new crop, you'll start to see it maybe be introduced into blends uh, around the first of November, and then just depending on on timing, you know how long it gets to to be fully that. New crop year, it can be a couple of months.
1: Yeah, and if a brewer's got a you know three month supply of malt in their brewery, you know, so you just never right. really, you you may right. not know. So, yeah. um, all right, well let's keep moving. So, um, you want to talk about cell wall modification at all there?
2: Right. Uh, so, in inside the endosperm barley, which is is by far the big part uh, of barley, it's it's its mass. The starches are in there as discrete discrete granules. And they're locked up inside protein, uh, and they're also locked up inside cell walls. Those are your, those are your naughty guys, uh, as we sometimes think of them, your beta-glucans, your pentazans, arabinocylans. And so having those properly broken down allows that kernel to crush properly in, in the mill and gives you access to those starches on the inside.
1: All right. and let's walk us through what we're looking for when it comes to wort separation in the lauter tun or mash filter.
2: One of the really important things in order to have good wort separation is that that kernel was completely and properly modified during the malting process. That means we've we've gotten access uh, through hydration for the enzymes to the entire portion of the kernel. Because if that steeping process isn't done uh, to the best of its capability, what you can have is basically three quarters of the kernel will be malty, if you will, uh, and broken down, and then you'll have one quarter that stays as as barley because it hasn't been the the hydration of that part to allow these enzymes to work on it. So that's my why. My personal belief is uh, germination. You see everything grow, kilning, you know, sexy flavor, color, all that. But but steeping is really, from from my perspective, that is the most important part of the malting process. Because if we don't do it right there, we are setting uh, you up for not having that effective hydration, which can then turn into to lautering and separation issues.
1: All right. Pretty interesting. Now, another big factor in watering and separation issues is beta glucan. Talk a little bit about the role that it plays.
2: Beta glucan is is important for the, the barley kernel itself. Uh, it just, it gives it structure. Uh, it helps it be durable. It helps us actually be able to, you know, put it in rail cars and, and transport it into malting plants. But when we're talking about the malting process, at that point, it's, it's not required to give it structure. And there's an enzyme, beta-glucan solubilase, that's in present in barley when it's harvested. And if we don't do a good job during malting, what will happen is whatever endo-beta-glucanase we created uh, during the steeping and germination process, it'll be denatured by kilning, but there will still be beta-glucan solubilase. Around and that's the one that takes that you know brick wall, strong structure that we think of uh, as, as beta glucan in the cell wall and, and breaks it down just far enough that it can be a, a real difficult thing to deal with and uh, create issues in, in the malting or in the brewery.
1: Cool, makes sense. Okay, how about um, moving on through other requirements? Uh, Low DMS uh, P is is definitely a concern. Talk about that a little bit.
2: What is probably the best thing to do is for us to be able to to push the equation, the the reaction towards the DMS and volatilize it in the kiln and exhaust it. That leaves less residual DMS P or DMS precursor. There to to be converted into DMS later in the brewing process, whether that be in the kettle, in fermentation, where wherever it may be. So, really, the goal for us is to try and get that reaction to go as far as it can, and make sure that that DMS goes out our exhaust. And we can do that by using uh, very high kiln airflows, and uh, particularly if if A given brewery is sensitive to DMS, one of the things that we can do is we can, we'll have the discussion with the brewer about the malt color specs. Because as we kiln a little bit more aggressively, that combined with the the airflow uh, allows us to push more of the reaction to DMS that's uh, exhausted and then doesn't carry over into the brewing process.
1: There's actually a relationship between protein and DMS precursor as well, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, protein is is a big determinant of protein and process. Basically, are what determine how much DMSP you're going to find. Uh, DMSP, the the precursor, is actual S-methylmethionine, which is an amino acid. Of course, a breakdown pro- product of of the proteins as that kernel thinks it's going to become a plant. So it's making S-methylmethionine uh, as part of its natural growth process. And so what we have to do then is, is allow it to do that and then take care of it by how, how we count.
1: Let's talk about attenuation uh, and that sort of realm of, of things as it relates to, to malting and malt analysis.
2: Attenuation is is kind of one of the hardest things for a a maltster to predict. There there are the AAL tests, but if you look at the sheer number of, of different <laughs> different mashes that are used, giving you different uh, carbohydrate spectra. If you look at the number of yeast strains uh, that are used in in the industry now, it, it gets very difficult to uh, for us to tailor any lab analysis to predict that attenuation directly for what's going to happen in a given beer in a given brewery. So basically what we have to do is make sure that we have a a normal and consistent carbohydrate profile. So sometimes we're not going to, we're not going to send something that's under modified. So you don't have as much fermentable sugar. Uh, it, and send something that's over modified, so you overproduce alcohol and you have very little uh, very little residual sur- uh, sugar so it's the consistency is is one of the biggest things that that brewers need to be able to depend on when looking at attenuation. Most yeasts do not suffer from uh, premature yeast flocculation issues which is an interaction between a, a certain yeast and a, a certain malt. Uh, but we have to be very uh, careful when we do ha- are working with a brewer that uses one of those yeasts.
1: All right. Let's get into um, filter, filterability for those out there who are still filtering. Uh, talk about the things maltsters do to increase filterability and minimize haze and also comment on any changes to that approach now that everyone wants hazy beer.
2: Oh yes, the hazy beer, and and oh, you don't get me started on uh, spending twenty eight years trying to get the haze out of malt, and now trying and now to find a way to in, put it right? back in. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, filterability is, is is about it's about throughput, it's about consistency, uh, it's about making sure that we do all of the jobs that need to be done before we go into the kilning process and and denature some of these enzymes. So, low viscosity uh, and low beta-glucan, making sure that we've fully hydrated that kernel uh, so we have access to the beta-glucan. And then, correspondingly, now we've broken down the proteins inside that endosperm cell, and we have access to the starch. Because there's some starches that need to be broken down in the malting process, and then the rest of the starch goes to the brewer. So basically, we're, we're wiping out those small starch granules because those are the ones that can create the permanent alpha-dextrin haze. So those are basically all the starch that we want to use up during the course of the malting process so that we don't create a haze problem. And we, the other end of that is that we don't use up too much of the starch that really should be going into in, the mash and, and ultimately come out of the process as alcohol.
1: So, what kind of strategies can you employ, in all seriousness, for those that want a stable haze? Uh, what are your options there in your process?
2: We have some um, indications that that some varieties might be uh, a little bit better at maintaining uh, that haze. And uh, unfortunately, it's one of the things with turbidity and haze is it's not a direct correlation that a congress mash done in a laboratory. With all the different mashing and the high gravity and everything that is different in a brewery, unfortunately, it's not as predictive of, of final uh, final wort turbidity or final beer turbidity. So we're looking at it a little bit from how do we how do we use variety uh, as a possibility in order to help there be a little bit more haze potential. Uh, we don't want to make If we're supplying one malt, uh, one base malt to to a brewery, however, and they want to make some that are hazy and some that are not, what you're looking really for is is a malt that has some potential there, but is not automatically going to create haze.
1: Got it. Okay, uh, let's talk about foam. Uh, What do you have to do to get the proteins to the right sizes to to make good foam for beer?
2: Well, foam... Foam, like everything else in life, it, it's about balance and, and getting the proteins broken down far enough so that you have them uh, able to be used by the yeast and able to still get some uh, peptide structure, which helps actually encapsulate that air inside the bubbles. So we know that 12 and, and, and 14 kilodaltons, basically 12,000 in, and in, and 40,000 molecular weight are are the proteins that are implicated in both the generation and the retention of, of foam and beer.
1: All right. Looking at sort of flavor stability and and, and long-term clarity locks, which we just talked about a couple weeks ago, that sort of thing. Uh, talk about some of the brewers' requirements in, in those areas as it results to, as it relates to malting.
2: Well, fortunately, most most malts, if when they're properly modified, we're not pushing very hard towards lipoxygen uh, synthesis. One of the things that's really good in in particular for craft brewers and, and people who are preparing beer to be served in their, their local market is that they're not packaging it. And they're not putting it on an ocean-going vessel to de- deliver it to another part of the world. So, really, most of the sensitivity on poxgenase li- comes when you're talking about exporting beer or beer that's going to be sitting around for a long time. So what we make sure that we we do is is we're not going to have very high protein beer uh, because then you can have issues with with clarity um, and clarity that is there when you start off, but in in package becomes an issue, which means the consumer no longer sees that beer as being what they expect uh, at at that given time. Pentazans and, and beta glucans need to be broken down because again, they can they can form gels and and hazes that cannot be treated and pulled out. And making sure we have the right uh, and and consistent. Carbohydrate modification. So we've, we've broken down the starches. We don't have alpha dextrin starch granules left uh, there uh, that, can, that can cause these kinds of, uh, of turning towards a, a, an unclear beer or a beer that is not as flavor stable.
1: We've talked about why um, malt needs to rest after the malting process a little bit uh, in, in past episodes in regards to locks, but there's some other reasons, too. Talk about what you've seen when you've experienced um, malt analyses that happen directly after malting versus waiting some time.
2: Well, This is a, an interesting one in that we really don't know everything that's going on in that period where we let the malt rest uh, after the After the malting process, uh, we we have our own breeding program at Malt Europe, and so we were looking at some of the new varieties that we are bringing up to commercial scale. and some of them came out a little bit turbid. and so just for just for giggles we we waited a co- two weeks and took that same quart sample and mashed it again. There was still some turbidity there. But it had been reduced by about a third. And after four weeks, it had been reduced almost by half. Wow. So we don't exactly know what's going on in there, but there are changes that are still being made during that that aging period. Uh, we also know that that, that aging period is, is really good in terms of uh, holding the kernel structure because the moisture is not equally distributed throughout the kernel at the end, end of the kilning process
1: do you think that that rest period is dependent is uh, dependent on the variety or do you think that all varieties need some period of rest
2: i think they all need some period of rest but i think some of the varieties that maybe are more prone towards haze need a bit a little bit longer and usually we we say uh, 14 days is a good figure before actually putting that that malt into a a bag, a rail car, a truck. That usually is the good uh, good practice that that protects both the maltster and the brewer.
1: Okay. We're going to get into some of the malt analyses here uh, a little deeper. But before we do, why don't you take a minute to just talk about why it's dangerous to look at uh, any one malt analysis parameter in isolation?
2: Sure. Um, I've had experiences in the past with, with a brewer that's very fixated on something like color or DP. And malting. the malting process is, is actually very influenced by the outside ambient air in in place that you're making the malt so when we in in milwaukee say in the dead of winter uh cold dry air it's very different than in in terms of kilning and how we dry the malt down as opposed to Uh, you know, a nice July day sitting next to, you know, one of the largest bodies of of water in the world in Lake Michigan. So, that ambient air has changed to a very great degree during that time, which means we have to kiln differently in order to get to the same DP or the same color by season. And so, if you, you establish very tight ranges for DP and color in particular, we have to malt differently to get to that desired end state based on the time of year. And what happens when, that, when you do that is we change the malting process. We change, in particular, the killing process. And so now everything else starts changing. So in order to get to the, those, those, that one or two key parameters, we have to change how we, how we make the malt, and, and so things like if you're trying to control color, DP will start to change, soluble protein will start to change. If you expect the same moisture in your malt uh, all year round, we definitely are going to have to kiln it very differently uh, in summer and winter. So by, by holding on to just uh, you know, a very tight range on one parameter, basically every, uh, every other parameter will become a moving part, and that's not good for consistency.
1: That's right. Okay. Um, Pretty much all of the malt analyses we're going to talk about, you know, have come out of the the Congress mash process. You proposed an alternative to the Congress mash back in 1996. Talk about that.
2: Oh, I did. Um, It was my uh, tilting at windmills uh, (laughs) experiment. But um, I, I really would like to see laboratory mashes that are closer to what's actually happening in breweries now. Amen. Yeah, and, and I do that, and, and I feel that way um, both in terms of wanting to provide the most uh, functional analysis uh, to the brewer, the most predictive analysis as possible, but also it, it's slightly protective. As a maltster, I want to be able to see how that malt is going to perform in the more stressful situation of a high gravity brew. And so it's it's slightly protective in that I, I'd I'd like to know if if there's a potential uh, for for any uh, issues in the brewery that wouldn't be picked up in in, in a Congress work. So I really uh, I have some strong feelings on this. Uh, you know I'd like to see a higher gravity, uh, higher temperature wort. Uh, yeah, maybe
1: because there's probably a lot of people who are familiar with the term con- Congress mash, but don't sure. know exactly w- what it means and what's different about it versus the brewery mash. So why don't you take a minute to just kind of outline sort of the, some of the key differences between what happens in a Congress mash versus what happens in the brewery?
2: Sure. A, a Congress mash is much thinner. Um, basically, it's 50 grams of, of ground malt and Four hundred grams of water by the time you're done with with the um, the water addition. So it's it's a much more concentrated mash. And when you talk enzyme mechanics, enzyme mechanics are a function of of pH. They're a function of how much that enzyme has to work on, uh, and and how much enzyme is actually present. So that will the enzyme dynamics will change in that be different in that thinner Congress mash uh, than in a regular brewery isothermal or programmed infusion mash. The other thing that's different about the the Congress mash is you start off with half an hour at 45 C. And that's considered to be the beta glucan rust And, and most brewers don't don't even spend any time at that at at that temperature anymore. So If there was any endobeta-glucanase left, it could potentially work in that first portion of the Congress mash, but is not likely to work when you actually put it in the real world of a brewery. You also transition um, in ramping the temperature uh, from 45C to 70C, one degree per minute, and that actually is really good for looking at any— remaining protease or peptidase activity, as well as more time in that brewer's window when you have alpha and, and beta amylase working, as opposed to to going in with an isothermal mash at 65C. And then the uh, Congress conversion is at 70C for one hour, and, and most brewers don't do that anymore. So it's, it's an idealized mash from 1929 or 25, that show differences between uh, different malts. But as far as actually being able to take what you get from that analysis, from that work, and say this is the same way that it's going to perform when it gets into brewery, unfortunately, uh, it's not that predictive.
1: So, what's it going to take for ASBC or, or somebody else to uh, to to make that shift in the industry and 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 get folks focused on something other than a congress mash
2: i think i think really the hard part is that when you go to that thicker mash and you go to the isothermal all of all of our norms change so now you're looking at beta glucan numbers that will be much higher but they don't mean that the malt is any less modified. Your fan numbers will be much higher, but that doesn't mean that the malt has been overmodified. So I think it's it's we would have to take a long time <laughs> to get used to the numbers that this new mash would would produce and kind of take ourselves out of, of thinking that this number means malt is bad or good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just need to come up with like different units so that it's like, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, so people yeah. have to really be like, okay, that's not the same number. No, um, no. Okay. Which
2: well, is kind of what, what they, they've done with, with some of the, uh, the VZ uh, tests for beta glucan in, in Europe and, and, and such. Yeah. They, they, they've made it a different mash. And so they've, they've looked at it differently
1: most malt COAs have fine grind but not coarse grind and no fine coarse difference. I believe Joe Hertrick explained on another episode that this is because most maltsters don't want to have to run an additional analysis just to get coarse grind, which makes sense. How do you recommend brewers calculate coarse grind when they only have a fine grind number to work with?
2: Well, honestly, I believe that if the customer is expecting to see F minus C, they're expecting to see a coarse grind extract, expecting to see a fine grind extract, that it be done. Uh, we analyze all of our brewer's malts for both fine grind and coarse grind extract. And the fine course difference is, is there, of course, from those numbers. I have my own feelings uh, about the relative worth of fine grind extract versus coarse grind extract. I think coarse grind extract is a little bit more, a little bit more realistic in terms of what you're actually going to achieve. But we have breweries that specify on fine grind extracts, specify on coarse grind ed- extracts. Some of them specify on coarse grind as is because then you 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 really know what the what the impact of, of moisture is so uh no I, I really wish we didn't have to do two mashes for for everything so it's a little bit tough for me to to speak to to monsters that aren't you know if they're not doing that because you know those are those are two numbers the fine course difference in itself really doesn't mean very much anymore uh because everything is is so much more modified and we have other tests like friability and, and beta-glucan to take a look at the, the condition of the cell walls and tell us whether those have been broken down. So, unfortunately, one of the things that, that happens is we get new analyses, but we never take away any of the ones that that this used to be the only way we could measure it. We, we still measure it
1: both ways. You sound like Joe there. That makes sense. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> we... Joe, uh, Joe and I are, are good friends, and and we probably agree about ninety five percent of the time. So, and a lot of respect for him. Coming up, you will not see a hundred percent Metcalf blend going to to a an all malt brew house because that's just. Uh, it's too hot in terms of the enzymes and, and too much fan.
1: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
0: Sponsored by the folks at BSG who understand that the best beers start with the best ingredients. That's why all BSG hops are hand-selected for quality by their expert staff so you can trust you are getting the very best hops from the very best growers in the US and around the world. Discover BSG's extensive range of domestic and imported hops at bsgcraftbrewing.com/hops.
2: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com.
0: Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today.
1: Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their extreme flex beverage transfer hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the Exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. District New York is holding a shop talk at the Torch and Crown Brewing in New York City. District Southeast is holding its annual crawfish boil at Tampa Bay Brewing in Tampa April 22nd. The District Carolina Spring Social is April 29th at Beer Study Durham. District Georgia presents an evening with Halfway Crooks and Dingaman's Malt May 2nd in Atlanta. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. District Michigan Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day Raw Materials Symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you
0: haven't joined master brewers now's the time just for listening to the master brewers podcast become a member for 123 dollars for the year head over to mbaa.com and use code beer 2023 when you join
1: Now back to the show. Okay, well, you just mentioned friability and uh, you've said that the uh, friability meter would be your desert island instrument. Why is that?
2: If, if, if really, if I have one thing to take a look at the quality uh, of, of malt that I've produced, it would be friability. Because I'm looking at did we have dead kernels? And they could be dead kernels, whether they w- the barley was dead when it came into the plant or somehow we didn't pick the right steeping schedule and we, we actually drowned those kernels. Friability also tells us when we have those steely distal ends that maybe we got the kernel two-thirds of the way hydrated, but we didn't get that, that distal end and it's still basically barley. So for me looking at the friability it's a pretty simple method and and it's not cheap um to do but it gives me good information about how i did the malting process and i think it also um it it's also a really useful tool for for brewers to look at it it's one of the things that you can have with say a beta glucan analysis if you blend under modified malt and over-modified malt, you can still have a decent beta-glucan number. The thing is, when you put that same malt in the friabilimeter, those kernels that weren't properly modified, they don't break down, and you can see that they're there. And uh, that's why I really believe it. it's a very useful tool and pretty simple to run.
1: All right. Talk about what high beta-glucan numbers mean, and, and what range do you consider high?
2: Oh, (laughs) the range on on what we consider high beta-glucan, every customer that I have will probably tell you what that cutoff is. Uh, I think to a large extent, uh, brewer's malt specifications have gone very conservative and very protective in their setting of of beta-glucan specs. And probably breweries could deal with a little bit more beta-glucan, but probably not maybe in – the exact masH uh, profile that they're they're using, so um, generally speaking, I wouldn't imagine seeing any negative issues uh, in an uh, all malt beer um, below 140, um, and in an adjunct beer, just because you have that dilution of the beta-glucan, uh, you, you probably are fine under 160, 170. But unfortunately, like I said, that's not where the where the specifications lie now because people are protective and they want to make sure they get that throughput and they don't have the issues with slow runoff or block beer filters or the haze that they can't get out. So it's very I think these specs are set very conservatively and protectively.
1: Okay, fair enough. Uh, Anything you want to say about the amylases or DP?
2: In terms of um, diastatic power um, and alpha amylase, I, I think they are they are good measurements. Um, I think they can have a use, f- especially uh, the DP side, when you're looking at all malt brewing versus adjunct brewing, you can make sure you you have enough enzyme if you're talking about adjunct brewing, and not too much that you might risk over-attenuation in in an all-malt beer. So I think one of the basic things there with with DP and Alpha is looking at consistency over time so that when you get to fermentation, you're presenting the yeast with uh, the most consistent wort batch after batch. So there may not be a, a right number that, you know, A brewer needs 150 DP, but if we send him 131 day and 170 the next day, those two malts are not going to um, perform in the same matter.
1: All right, makes sense. Let's talk about growth counts. That's something that isn't always on a COA. I usually just look in my ton to see how many big acro spears are floating. But what do growth counts do for you in the malt house? And what should a brewer do with this number if they have it?
2: Honestly, uh, here's another case where I I very much agree with Joe. Uh, Growth counts on finished malt. Um, they can give us it, for the malster a little bit of a, a, a post mortem look, if you will, um, on how we did. But really, th- the purpose of the growth co- count is when the malster goes out and does his survey, and he's 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 looking at the acrospire development, looking at his rootlet development, you know, checking to make sure that 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 kernel by doing the the rub is is pasting. Uh, and it's it's properly breaking down. In f- terms of final uh, growth in malt, it really is about the only thing it can tell you is if you have a bunch of dead kernels. But as far as distinguishing between well-modified and over-modified malt, uh, it really is not that helpful.
1: All right, fair enough. Let's talk about total protein and protein modification. I guess first tell us why protein modification needs to occur in the malt house rather than in the brew house.
2: Well, um, the peptidases and the endoproteases are are some of the uh, most temperature sensitive enzymes that we have uh, that are operating in malting or in barley growing. And so they tend not to survive to any great degree on the kiln, especially as we, we look at, at malts that are, are now more color in base malts, which is, which is a trend that we've seen. That kilning will not allow there to be as much residual activity once you get to the mash. So that's why it's it's really our job to take care of that. A lot of breweries are not holding in in you know the the mid forties, you know up to up to fifty five or fifty six C in their in their mash profile. So between the kiln denaturing and the actual mash temperatures being used, there really is very little opportunity for additional breakdown once you get into the brewery.
1: We we've talked a good bit. With Joe, and then again a few weeks ago with Dr. Aaron and Dr. Yin about excess fan being problematic for the all malt brewer. Talk about how you control fan in the malt house and what's an ideal fan target for all malt brewers. Mm -hmm.
2: All breweries are not created equal, so exactly saying an ideal fan target is is difficult. Generally speaking, with an all malt brewer, we would definitely want to keep the fan below two hundred. And how we're going to do that is by those those surveys that our monsters doing, making sure that we are not getting excessive growth. Uh, we are going to make sure that we don't germinate longer than possible. And and one of the key items really is we're going to make sure we select varieties that are not as prone uh, to the high fans. Um, looking at your, your more moderate varieties. Uh, that's why a lot of times y- you will not see 100% Metcalf blend going to, to a, an all malt brew house because that's just uh, it's too hot in terms of the enzymes and, and too much fan.
1: There's probably not a lot to say about moisture content since it's really a product of, of other drivers, but what kind of moisture numbers should be red flags for brewers?
2: Generally speaking, uh, above 5.0. Uh, would be an issue or would yield less beer. At that point, you actually will see the the impact of the moisture uh, driving down the available, um, available extract there. Um, we also don't want to see uh, moistures below 3.5, and this can actually be difficult to do, uh, is, is to keep it above 3.5. Uh, in in some of the very arid, uh, dry, uh, and cold parts of our country in in the winter. So at that point, then what you're likely to have is is a bunch of breakage. And again, you're going to be looking at that that milling consistency going down just because of the moisture. You're going to see um, additional uh, destruction of the husk. Rather than than you know maintaining the husk and just crushing the kernel inside
1: let's uh, let 's talk about oppositional specs and give us some examples
2: <laughs> uh, uh, the oppositional specs are kind of the thing that I, I love it when I talk to a brewer who understands malting is because they realize. You can't have it all. (laughs) You can't have it all, and some of these you you can through varietal selection. You can somewhat through through process. You can kind of get closer to these ideals, but a lot of this has to do with how you how you kiln. And so, um, if somebody wants us to maximize the diastatic power, well, that means we don't uh, denature as much of the of the uh, beta amylase and limit dextrinase. And how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we keep it as a more gentle kiln cycle, which therefore leads to higher moisture. Um, if somebody wants a very lightly colored malt, we have some options. We can undermodify it so we don't have as many of those Maillard precursors uh, in the reducing sugars and amino acids or again, we can let the moisture stay up a little bit higher by kilning by more gently. So um, uh, one that is b- that always makes me smile when I see it in a specification is, is somebody who actually wants high free amino nitrogen but low soluble protein, which free amino nitrogen is a component of soluble protein. So Good
1: I luck haven't figured out yeah.
2: how, to, how to produce one but not produce, not produce the other.
1: All right. How about some other examples?
2: I, it's, um, it can be difficult. You can do some with varietal selection. But if you really want that low uh, protein in order to drive extract up, um, having a very high uh, enzyme count, and in particular, a very high uh, diastatic power number, it can be very difficult because those because enzymes
1: enzymes are proteins. so <laughs> They are
2: made out of, uh, out of broken down proteins, yes, and reassembled amino acids. So, you know, that can, that can be difficult. Again, you can do some things with, with process, uh, with kiln temperature, uh, with varieties that you select. But, but it, is, it, it is kind of, you know, one or the other. It's a seesaw effect. So you, you push one and, and you change the other. Um, the the other one is, is probably uh, the relationship between color and soluble. And um, trying to keep color low and soluble protein high or vice versa, uh, amino acids are part of the building blocks that go to form color. So, if you are trying to minimize soluble protein, trying to hold back the amino acids— is very difficult because you don't have as many amino acids to form that color in the Maillard reaction.
1: Okay. Um, Kind of talking about, we did this with Joe, but we sort of weeded through, you know, uh, different analyses and tried to figure out, okay, well, what's, what are the ones to focus on? What are the most important? So I'll ask you, if you had a, a small brewery, you know, which, which CO numbers do you think you'd pay the most attention to? If you could just kind of focus on a couple of them.
2: Sure. I would want to focus on, um, I would definitely want to see the assortment. Um, And I actually believe uh, it's more helpful to the brewers if they see the on six and the on seven separately, because the combined number doesn't change as much, particularly in a crop year change. As those individual numbers and the percentage on the six and the and the percentage on the on seven will change, so that gives you more that idea. Hey, maybe I should be looking at at my grist uh, settings, uh, grist analysis to see if my most settings are appropriate. Uh, color uh, color is important because it's it, it goes a lot to how does this malt fit what i'm trying to make in, in a beer and and also color has some relationship to to perceived flavor so that is is good to have there as well again i le- you know i'm i'm a big geek about friability i think that's an excellent one beta glucan is nice to have and and important but uh, if you can't do all the wet chemistry and and beta glucan, you know wet chemistry is is pretty expensive. You know then the friability is is a good option. I also like fan, um, as as it really looking at consistency and fan. You're looking at consistently what is the amino acid profile that I'm presenting to the yeast uh, day in and day out, and in making sure that that is is both sufficient and and consistent in not changing uh, all the time is important.
1: we know there's no one size fits all, but do you, is it worth kind of giving some ranges for a typical domestic two row specifications for each parameter, maybe just for some brewers that you know maybe don't really know where to start
2: sure uh, it in terms of, of of assortment, usually you're looking at. 60 or 65 minimum on a 764th screen. screen, uh, and for the on six plus seven, usually you're looking at 90 and above. But again, like I said, with, with changes in crop year, um, how though that two, those two are are composed, it will change slightly. Moisture, generally speaking, uh, four three or four five max is is good. Gives you enough moisture that you're not going to lose as much uh, through breakage and handling, but not too much that you're actually going to not be providing as much starch uh, for for the brewery. Fine grind dry, um, it can be 80 minimum. It can be 81 minimum. That's one of those things that really we talk to our customers about when we have a new crop because the amount of starch that is available is really set by mother nature. So it's not, we can do some things inside the malting process in terms of how we steep, how we germinate, how we dry the the malt in order to make some minor changes in, in, in that fine grind number. But really most of it is what mother nature gives us to work with. So we will look at that and, and reevaluate that on on an annual basis color we can do a lot of different colors and that is so brewery dependent now uh we have uh we have customers with base malt specs that go up to 3.2 uh color which you know really you didn't see very often um if at all uh 10 or 15 years ago but as people are doing more in the craft sphere and really this this focus on flavor uh some of which comes from processing uh people are um uh, going higher with their malt color specs in order to try and and drive that multi-flavor and and give that solid backbone um backbone against which to play off the character of the hops
1: that must be fun for you to see because it certainly must open a lot more doors for you in the process
2: it does it does and um, it's. Uh, I personally like to chew the malts that are a little bit darker. Um, to me, they they just they just taste better, and uh, so I, I like the higher, uh, higher colored malts. Diastec Power. Um, generally, you'll find most North American two rows operating in a range between 130 and 160 degrees Lintner. Um, again, some of what we're doing with with bringing some more of the European germplasm into the U.S. We're starting to be able to uh, achieve some of the lower diastatic powers now. But if you were talking about just your, your Metcalfs of the world, you know, you would definitely be up at that, that top end and, and could even see if it was just Metcalf up to 180 diastatic power. And again, that's part of the reason why maltsters provide blends uh, to our brewers customers is trying to maximize the individual contributions of the different varieties uh, that may be better one may be stronger on on it's a lower beta glucan this one may be a lower dp this one may be a higher dp Um, trying to really have them all work in sync with with one another to to get the best balance blend alphas 55 and, and up is is pretty typical. Some of the Europeans will be in that 45 to 55 range, but again, usually those varieties are not being used as 100%, so you do not have to worry about uh, running out of alpha amylase. Beta glucan, um, we have uh, specs from 140 max um, all the way down to 100 max. Uh, 100 max can be a little bit tough to achieve unless modification is is really encouraged and that would reflect itself in the color and all of the all of the other parameters as well soluble protein four five to five three uh, depending completely uh, on where the, the protein is for that given year um, again protein is one of those things that mother nature gives us and we need to let that soluble protein float a little bit in order to have the same outcome that we're expecting in in modification. So that number will move. For U.S. two rows, uh, if you're talking like a a back calf, um, not unusual to see 180 to 220 um, on the fan. And that's part of the reason why we're bringing in varieties that are are a little bit more moderate, uh, like Copeland, uh, like genie like expedition in into the blend in order to moderate that that very intense uh, enzyme and freeamine and nitrogen production down <laughs>
1: That was Mary Jane Maurice here on the Master Brewers Podcast. By the way, if malt COA still haven't really clicked for you yet, MJ can help. She gave a great presentation during District Michigan's 2019 Winter Conference. At the end of that presentation, MJ went through a super valuable exercise where she showed a handful of malt analyses next to each other on the screen and talked through the differences. If you want to take your understanding of malt COAs to the next level, this is a great opportunity to leverage one of the great resources that comes along with Master Brewers' membership, the District Presentations Archive. Thanks to the efforts of volunteer district officers like Debbie Neustifter-Smith, members can download both slides and audio of MJ's presentation. Check the show notes for a link. My
0: fist full of courage